My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, and today I'm very excited to be able to share this person's story. And her name is, <coughs> sorry, Chantel Sati. She's a graduate of Oxford University, and her list of accolades are quite impressive. So I'm going to just read through it. She holds a postgraduate certificate in theology, along with a master's of theology in urban and international development from UFT, a bachelor's of science with honors uh, in kinesiology from York University. And she's an innovator in the, in the field of AI. Her company is doing really cool things. I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, so again, she's an innovator in the field of AI, international development and technology. And um, her company's invention or her invention through her company, Cornerstone AI's signature proprietary software, Bias Finder AI, which I like the name and I wanna kind of dig into that, uh, synergizes AI coding technologies to establish a causal interface or inference, sorry. So basically just kind of cause and effect uh, using algorithms and detects biases uh, and just kind of general behaviors. And I'll, I won't kind of read the whole pillar, but I think, you know, um, Chantel will explain it much better and much more eloquent than me. So without further ado, Chantel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's wonderful to be here, Era, reporting live from, I should say, Phoenix, Arizona. Awesome. No, thanks for joining. And I, I probably didn't eloquently describe it as well as you could. I feel like founders always do a much better job of succinctly and like in a, an exciting way describe the company. So I'll let you explain that a little bit later. But for me, I'm always a fan of starting at the beginning. I feel like how you're raised, just kind of things you're exposed to as a child really impact the decisions and, you know, the person you ultimately become. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your family, your upbringing, and maybe how some of that ultimately helped you kind of get to where you are today with being a founder of this, you know, great company. Awesome. Eric, thank you very much. My, I'd say, humble beginning starts out in Scarborough, born near Kennedy subway station, Kennedy and Ellesmere in that area. And still to this day, my parents are in Scarborough. Home for me is Scarborough. I'm always fiercely loyal to Toronto. And just even when I'm traveling internationally, being around, I would say, 42 different countries representing different projects, international federations and things, I always bring it back home. And I think it's key to start at the beginnings. And the humble parts of, I would say, being at RH King Academy, it's a high school there, Markham and Eglinton, sorry, is it Markham and Eglinton around that area, more St. Clair and Kingston Road-ish area. Then my parents still are in Scarborough. I have a younger sister, but they came to Toronto in 1984. And this was just right before the riots were taking place back home in Sri Lanka. So as my parents were fleeing literally with one suitcase and started from scratch here in Toronto, that was the upbringing that we had. And that's something I'm always mindful of because you never want to forget how you started and always remember to pay it forward. And that was the foundations that our parents really raised my sister and myself on and making sure that we never lived in a limit. And we took every opportunity we had to progress and grow and to integrate with other cultures. I think that was also one of my keys to success. So growing up in Scarborough, then getting to study at 
UFT doing a master's there was wonderful. Do you want me to continue talking more a little bit? Yeah, actually, I want to, I'm very curious about that uh, master's degree at UFT. So it's in yeah. theology and urban and international development. So tell me a bit about that. Like, that's a really interesting mix. So like, mm -hmm. what did you get out of that experience? And was it like what you hoped to get out of it going into the program? A lot of it, okay, great question. I would say studying at UFT was remarkable, but I purposely wanted to study a little bit of theology and urban and international development. So more of like project management, global strategies, innovation development. But I quickly realized if you don't have a philosophical upbringing or understand morality, meaning, destiny, virtues, purpose, that undergirds every single thing that you're doing. And I think it's key for us to remember that because if you want to go far in life and if you want to inspire people and you want to make a difference and an impact, you need to know who you are and who you were created to be. And I think that falls short for many people that I interact and live, I, I see and talk to. We strive for the money or the success or the fame and the glory, but little do we know why we exist or what is our purpose in life and who we were created to be. And in the process of setting theology, it's a process of also self-discovering yourself, but interacting with the creator of the universe and learning step by step, day by day, how to abide in love and to walk forward with peace. So doing a master's degree there helped equip me with some of the challenges I face now in a whole different world and area. But studying there and the cohort was just definitely transformative as well. A very eloquent answer. It's, I never, I would have never have thought of that. You're right though, the underlying people look at degrees or like things in terms of how they, what they can get out of a job or just kind of looking forward. But um, I guess if you're doing a degree in theology, you have to like reflect inwards and kind of really get to your why and understanding that before you can kind of make better decisions in the outward world, I guess. So very well said. Um, you talked about like you've traveled to, I know you've traveled to a bunch of countries. I know that because I follow your Instagram and uh, pre-COVID you were everywhere and anywhere. Um, so that kind of leads to the second question, which is, you know, you've done, I don't know if I consider the U.S. international, but I guess it is because we're just so used to being their, boy, uh, their neighbor that it's not that big of a deal. But you've done mm -hmm. post-grad degrees at Arizona State as well as Oxford. Um, so how are those experiences like? Um, and you know, it's such a big shift, like leaving, like you said, Scarborough, you're born and raised. Uh, obviously, you've traveled before that, but just actually physically leaving your family, your friends and moving to a completely new place for a period of time, obviously, to like, study a particular thing. Um, what was that experience like? Did you have any challenges? Any advice for people that are thinking about the same thing, like doing school internationally? Great question. So at 25 is when I actually that's when I left Scarborough to move to Oxford University and go across the pond and live in the UK and experience life in a very different atmosphere. And you hear the name Oxford and people think it's, it's the most brainiac, like brain-centered education, the prim, proper prestige, which is there. And that is absolutely correct. And when you're a young person coming from Scarborough, you're not used to a culture that is very societally driven on the ethics and the foundation of being the top university in the world. 
And when I went to Oxford, I again studied theology there. So you heard about my master's before, but then I went to study theology, a little a, a postgraduate there, a certificate in theology. But it was my time at Oxford that transformed me. That's when I realized who I am and took that time to basically do rehab on my heart and work on myself, work on the internal fears, gluttony, neglect, all of those pieces, trying to people please, ripping all of those societal constraints off and focusing on loving the person I was created and destined to be. And doing that in an environment at Oxford really shifted and challenged me. And long story short to this day now, I'm the first, I would say, the youngest female of color to ever be an Oxford University's alumni board. And there's 15, well, a total of 20 of us around the world that look at the global strategies for Oxford and how you're gonna engage with the 350,000 alum around the world, as well as look at a 3 billion capital campaign that they're going to invest in for the future. And having a voice at that table where you can actually say what the future of innovation and technology and knowledge should look like is a gift that's given to me. But it goes back to the same point that I was saying before, until you really know who you are, opportunities like this do not necessarily come. And it's easy for those, for you to just blend in with everyone else. But the authentic voice that a person has definitely stands out which is what has now brought me also to Arizona State to do my doctorate in innovation and science and technology as well. So you mentioned Oxford, obviously Oxford has a very prestigious name when you think of it, just like a Harvard or just other schools of that kind of caliber. Um, with COVID exposing kind of the value of education or at least kind of making people uh, rethink it, do you think mm -hmm. the prestige of these, you know, these big brands like Oxford, Harvard's, et cetera, will decrease in the future because people are not looking at education the same way. They're not looking at this need of doing a two-year, one-year, four-year program. They want to do more bite-sized programs and they want mm -hmm. to do it in, you know, more practical settings versus like they might look at universities a bit more theoretical. Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts around that? Like, do you think going through the, you know, the Oxford experience, you know, getting that access to that network and meeting all these great minds, do you think that prestige will still be there five, 10 years from now? And I know it's just a guess, but like, I'm just curious because you were there firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely answer that, but I'd like to actually throw the question back to you and ask you, when you hear the word Oxford, what does that mean to you? Let's say for me, Oxford is a, like, I would say- you And be like, honest, you can be honest and open. And oh, when I say, when I hear Oxford, it's like more, like I think of Harvard or like maybe because like I'm very North American centric. And for mm. me, Oxford, you know, the only things I know are certain thinkers that came out of that school. Uh, mm. Obviously, it has a very prestigious and well-known name. But I guess in terms of like my interest areas, it's not like a school that's like there versus like an MIT or like, you know, another mm. like a Stanford or something like that. Um, so that's why I, I particularly use Harvard and Stanford versus like Oxford, because I know they're both obviously very well renowned, but uh, you went to Oxford firsthand. So that's why I asked about that. Great question. Uh, I'll put it this way. If I didn't have that on my CV, the doors that I open and enter today would never be there. And as much as taking these bite size or executive certificate and 
few courses online would do. It's nothing like actually studying and striving and trying and putting yourself out there that allows you to have doors and opportunities that are not given to everybody. And it's unfortunate. It truly is unfortunate. If somebody told me when I was 15 years old that I'd be doing this, I would have said, hell no, <laughs> it's not even possible. The odds were never in my favor. It never was. But to see how you have to unlock the potential in your mind, then you're, you just live in a world of limitless opportunities. Awesome. Another part of like, you know, you had a lot of very eclectic kind of experiences, like, you know, you in terms of like the experiences you've had from a schooling perspective, but also um, obviously you have a huge or it seems like a huge passion for sport because a running theme in a lot of the roles you've taken on, you know, before starting Cornerstone AI was, you know, I think you did a stint at Pan Am American Games, sport in at Toronto, the yes, yes, when the Pan Am Games were there, yeah. there, yes, sport yes. at the service of humanity and uh, the Commonwealth Games. So mm. tell us, I guess, what attracted you to these particular roles and like why sport is so important to you? Mm, great question. So my undergraduate was in um, kinesiology and health studies. And like you, Eric, going to the gym, personal training, taking care of yourself, that's a part of who you are. And in that pursuit of being a personal trainer in Liberty Village, Good Life Fitness, going down that whole route too, and I was trying to discern and see which is the right place for me, I soon discovered the unity amongst diversity in sports. And when I was able to study at Oxford, I, I participated or I was a member of Oxford's kickboxing team and competed. And that's when I really fell in love with international levels of sports. And sport is that it's a platform, it's a medium that brings together culture and people, but above that, it gives people a hope to celebrate for. And by partnering and being a part of these global entities, it shifts your dimension and perspective. And what's your favorite sport if you had to choose one? Oh, by far boxing. boxing by okay. far, yeah, yeah. And, and is that post the experience at Oxford or? I just have a lot more admiration for the people that do combat sport, definitely. And the intense grueling and training that you have to go for. How about you? Do you have a favorite sport? Is it basketball? Um, I would say it's a close to one A and one B. So I love basketball because I also play, but I love watching football, like American football. Um, I never played, but it's like, I don't, I know people don't see, like uh, some people don't see it the way I do, but I think of it as like a very, a giant chess game. There's like a lot of strategy involved in football and I never appreciated it until I started watching like six, seven years ago. Yeah. And um, yeah, this past weekend, probably the craziest weekend of football I've ever seen. Oh, yes. Uh, yes so yes. I just reiterated that. Um, so yeah, let's say football. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. Now we want to. I want to kind of get into the meat of the matter, which is, you know, this... Mm company you've built and you know you're um, just kind of digging and kind of figuring out why you started it you know how the team came together but you know I'll start at the beginning in terms of what even sparked this idea behind Cornerstone AI and how did you come up with the name? Ah oh, great question so we'll start off with how did I come up with the name the truth is it's actually grounded on my faith my faith is in Jesus Christ and he is the cornerstone of my life and I haven't necessarily always been a strong, passionate Christian at all, 
until I really went to Oxford and discovered who I was created to be. Then I decided to name the company Cornerstone AI because of the foundation of my values and belief systems. And then it started to become contagious because it doesn't necessarily fit a traditional technology name that's there. And how did I start this company? It was actually by different, one of my good friends, I'd say at PwC in Canada. She posed a problem to me and told me about biases that was happening in artificial intelligence systems. And if you've heard my story to this point in time on the podcast, not once did I ever mention AI or technology because that was never really truly my background. And right before COVID, when that came into place, it was the same problem that people were asking me to consistently solve. And that is how I ended up birthing this company, but just through that endeavor of trying to see, okay, why are biases happening? What is the real meaning behind bias? And what is artificial intelligence? How do these systems work? What is an algorithm? Self-learning, self-teaching myself. And now I'm doing my doctorate on this actual subject matter because I've launched the company in Miami, Florida, but strategically have built very strong partnerships with the US federal government in Washington, DC. Amazing. And obviously you can't build something like this with such a grand mission in place by yourself. So how did mm -hmm. you go about starting to kind of put together the team? Because I feel like that's like a really hard thing to do. There's a particular skill in that. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And I would say my team is it's number one for me. Every morning I take an executive call at 9 a.m., no matter where I am or what I'm doing, and I get to gather with my team. It's always top priority. It's always my team first. They are insatiable. I love being around these people. They are professionals. They range from 18-year-olds all the way to 64-year-olds. We have an eclectic mix. The chairman of my board was, his name is Admiral Norman Hayes, and he was the former intelligence director for the US Navy SEALs when they went to Afghanistan. So we've got like the caliber at the top there, all the way to software engineers in Montreal, Canada. The bias finder, the technology we, we invented came from Montreal and Toronto. And it was just truly different people hearing my story, following me on social media and reaching out through either Oxford or just they had a friend, they had a connection. I was in Miami at the right time, met somebody, went to some event, and then all of a sudden a movement started to form. But everybody rolled up their sleeves and majority of them volunteered. We don't have any investors because I funded the whole company on my own and just gone through that path to get it right now in the US federal government within a whole year of doing all of this is just a testimony to my team. That's amazing. So you bootstrapped it, which is quite amazing. Yeah. It's like the much harder path. Do you have plans to fundraise at some point or do you want to go down the path of, you know, getting this company to uh, just like generate revenue and just kind of you know, continue to grow based on how your revenue grows? Great question. Ideally, I'm thinking at this point now, because we do need to expand and grow and further develop the bias finder AI, the software. So I would love to get an investor involved, but at the same time, we've come so far and to do it where the team members each hold a good chunk of equity within the company, because that was my strategic decision to fund it, put in my own personal savings, everything to it. So the members of my team get more portion. And it's because I care that everybody's treated well, and then they can have a livelihood off of this once it 
generate revenue and it continues to progress forward. I strategically wanted to go down the other route of looking for partnerships and contracts right away and built the company around that model. And that's why when you have different federal government partnerships that either act as the aggregator for the US Department of Defense, Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, et cetera, and they need artificial intelligence technology that's ethical to be built, the aggregators are there, but Cornerstone AI is strategically put in position there where everyone's looking at Silicon Valley. They're looking at in more of those AI tech hubs that's there. I changed route and went and explored in a different area and then kabang. It's just waiting to, to go up from there. So just kind of to clarify, so Bias Finder AI and just kind of what the company does is you sell contract services or you help organizations use AI in an ethical way to kind of remove bias from decision-making. So like, for example, like you have the standard or the typical problem or challenge of, you know, somebody with a Caucasian sounding name versus someone that doesn't, one person's more likely to get a phone call back for a job interview and one person isn't. So just kind of your technology basically allows, um, it might not be that particular use case, but something like that where if, recruiters or someone are using technology to kind of find candidates to remove the bias, any inherent biases that might be existing so that they actually find the right candidates uh, based on the qualifications versus anything else. Does that sound about right or did I butcher it at all? No, I should recruit you for my team. <laughs> yeah, okay. you, said it, you said it spot on. So imagine the bias finder AI, it can sift through large amounts of data that's getting processed by a machine learning system. That's a category within AI technology. And it can sift through the data, but it can also look at the outcomes from the machine learning system. And we isolate for a certain variable in the data, such as ethnicity, gender, age, and can take a look at a causal and causation-based, I would say, algorithms that we've combined together. We use those algorithms to tell us if that isolated variable actually has a disproportionate outcome to the certain amounts of people that's there in the data set that's at the end, the outputs that are created. So I guess your revenue model is almost like a service-based one where they're using a technology to do this. So like, are your, are your clients right now all government organizations or are they private companies? Great question. So it's more of a, I would say we've got a product and the consultancy, that's more of our business model, both coupled together, just so we expand our revenue options. But it is primarily right now, the US federal government, we've had three assessments done within the justice system in USA, a healthcare service and sorry yeah data set that came to us from new york city and then finally it was a mortgage data set that we also looked at from montreal canada so we can go that's the cool thing about the bias finder it's not limited to a specific industry so for any of the listeners that's out there and if they are also involved in any corporations companies that are trying to integrate and involve ethical ai that's exactly where cornerstone ai comes in to help support and also build those bridges and teach and educate people on responsible AI. So I guess the hardest part for any company is really finding that product market that you built a great product. How did you go and find your customer base? Because you know this essentially is B2B sales and that's a very difficult and challenging and time consuming thing to do. 
So how did you guys like get your customers or find your customers, I'd say? Great question. I think it's because of the beauty in our product. It's those six different algorithms have been coded and created in a different way that hasn't been done before. And it's solving a massive massive global issue, which is in AI technology. So it was actually quite very easy for us to knock on different doors or for us to even get into the federal government because people had already been educated. They know about Facebook. They've heard about Amazon and what's happened say in 2019 when female candidates were not actually selected for positions that's there. This made headways in the news. Sometimes when we say, algorithms and social media only show us certain content that's there well that's a form of bias so people have heard these things but now to actually produce and create a product that can solve it and help was a very easy way for us to bridge and merge those b2b connections that's amazing um and you you know i want to touch on this because you talked about earlier but you have this amazing team behind you and you have this running nine o'clock call with them regardless every day regardless of where you are what does your day look like? Um, and was it what you kind of expected going into this um, entrepreneurial lifestyle, like like the what you thought it was going to be and what you actually do on a day-to-day basis? Just curious about like, yeah, how your day works. These are, the, this is a great question, actually. This is a great question, but now you're getting into the crux behind my brain and what it takes for actual success to happen and achieve on a global level. If I had to say my day, I start off by four at 4.45 every morning I'm up, trying to get out of bed at that time, but I'd say for 5 a.m. I have a, a cup of tea with me, like green tea is one of my favorites, but that's when I do my prayers, my meditation and my devotions with God. I'll usually try from like about 5.30 until about 7 a.m. reading the word, but journaling. I spend time journaling. I spend time processing things with Jesus and trying to figure out problems or what I need to work on and things like that internally. How can I be a better person? I don't necessarily think that achieving to be a good person in human in society should be our ultimate goal. There's so much more than just that. And when you take the time to center yourself in the morning and dwell in peace, the rest of your day is just completely transformed from like seven till 8 a.m 8 30 that's when i'll go to the gym do a workout and then once that's finished it's like corporate calls right away 9 a.m with your executive team after from 9 till about like 10 30 that first chunk of time from 9 i'd say to yeah 10 30 11 12 ish is all meetings presentations jumping from one zoom meeting to another zoom meeting getting ready to present having the slides on getting set wardrobe change all those things has to happen in between at 12 o'clock or when between 12 to one, that's when I tell my team, like, I've got to transition now. I'm doing my doctorate. I've got to go to classes. I've got to learn about AI and law. I've got to learn about US federal government policy regulations and AI. I've got to learn about these other pieces there because I myself need to be ahead of the curve all the time. And you need to be with like the brightest and best people innovating, creating, thinking in order for you to grow. That takes up all my afternoon getting into the evening time, I bike back home. And then after that, it's kind of like, okay, cook my meals, sit down and talk, catch up with my text messages, family members. But then after that, in the evening night, it's grinding again, it's reading, it's going back to executive summary reports, finishing up the emails, taking the calls, strategizing, planning, going to bed for me 10pm. And then you start the grind like that again, and hard work like this day in and day out is what makes 
life fun. Like I have joy doing this now because I see all the pieces of my life come together. That's amazing. And is this Monday to Friday or is this Monday, like like all seven days, is it like this for you? Great question. It's, it's Monday to Friday. Saturday, I actually take a tech Sabbath. I take one whole day, no technology. And I'm not as consistent as I used to be last year. But I would just encourage every single listener right now to try this. Take one day, at least out of a month, unplug yourself from your cell phone and your laptop and learn to just breathe and read a book and cook a meal from scratch or share a meal with someone you don't know. And the more you start to do that, you allow your body to rest. You allow your mind to rest and you allow yourself to get focused. So then the next day when it comes, you're alert, awake, and recharged. And so then set more family time and then back into it again too. So like when you say full text habit, not just phone, but even like TV or just anything that's an electronic device. Correct. I learned this from a book. It's actually called 24-6. And it was a book that was written probably a couple of years ago by a, ho- a Jewish Hollywood producer. And she and her husband started doing this text Sabbath and wrote in this book what it does to the brain, psychologically, physically, socially. And I learned a lot from reading that book and I developed that same habit too. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I do. Yeah. Like Have you day. ever tried that? Would you ever do it? No, I haven't done like, a, what I would say is for me, I generally don't like to do, some people do work on their phone, like the reply to emails and things like that. I only do... Mm-hmm. I guess it's a form of Sabbath, but I don't think it really is. But I only do work at my desktop and mm-hmm. I don't like to, I don't do work elsewhere. So like if I go to the living room, I go somewhere else, like I try not to look at my phone or respond to people. Mm-hmm. Like if it's like work related, I only do it at my desktop because I want to associate um, this with work. And like when I'm out there, like I want to be focused on whoever or whatever I'm doing out there. But it's not technically mm-hmm. a Sabbath, but I have thought about this because as an author that I follow, gosh Neil something he wrote the book of awesome and when I met him um I think me and Claudia went to like a talk with him he said one of the things he started to do was he didn't call that tech sabbath but he like you know just a day away from technology where he would just spend time with his wife and his kids and not look at his phone or just anything for that whole day and it really helped him with kind of writing and just as like how he felt so um Mm -hmm. definitely something to explore for me um I need to figure out how to do that but I would love to do that. I think I, I might, I think my kids might make me commit to it because uh, I feel like I would love to not look at technology while I'm with them. So that's cool yeah. that you do that. And do then, it and tell me, tell me how you feel after you do it. Just try it once because you'll learn so much about yourself and I'll challenge you. Well, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is like on the YouTube channel is start doing mini mm-hmm. videos about like different topics that I like. So I feel like to explore this idea of a tech Sabbath would be uh, maybe I'll try it and kind of report back in terms of was I able to do it or the benefits or the what's what was hard yeah. about it. So great idea. I will definitely note that down. Did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? OK, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. I want to ask you about trademarking because I don't know if you actually did trademark it because I know it was proprietary, 
but did you go through the actual process of trademarking bias find your ai like the name or like like your like algorithm and if so yeah. what was that process like correct so i got cornerstone ai trademarked as well as bias finder so it is established it's gone into the us patent and trade office and once you file for a trademark then it takes about one whole year to actually get it approved but it is it's trademarks are not too costly it becomes costly when you start to think about your brand and a company internationally and the legal implications that happens if you don't build your company on the right ground as a correct foundation right away. The more stressful part, more than a trademark, is the IP, the intellectual property behind these algorithms, behind the bias finder, behind who was it Chantal that designed the bias finder? Or was it the data engineers that actually coded and created it? Who gets what portion of the actual IP in it? And do we even get any if it's actually cornerstone AI, if it's, if it belongs to the company, is it the company's IP and having these discussions and debates with IP lawyers in Silicon Valley has actually really shaped and helped me a lot to get more acute with the way that I look at these things, but also realize that it's extremely important to be mindful of these things to any entrepreneur that's starting the process now, do these things now when you can instead of later. Yeah. I think when I, first started my journey of what's the saying you're penny wise pound foolish I think yeah yeah. so I think just things like even like um, not putting together a shareholder agreement or like trying to come up with client agreements on my own um, I didn't necessarily get screwed but I could have been and like now I've just realized that money just has to be spent because it's like almost like your health you either pay a tax now or a tax later eat healthy food now spend a little bit more now go to the gym, spend money on that, or pay tax when you're like 50, 40, and you have a health condition. So that's just something mm-hmm. that I've grown to kind of do more. Think about, think right? about yeah. So looking to the future, what does success look like for you, like on a personal level and on a company level for Cornerstone AI, let's just say three years from now or five years from now, what does that look like? Success for me is when my successor is able to take over and be the CEO and I can transition to become the president, but by that time have at least 80 to 100 employers within our company and allow everybody to have good benefits, good salaries, but also allow us to be a community of people that are learning together. That's what success means to me for Cornerstone AI three years from now. And I don't like the word failure, so let's just use learning lesson, but what's been a learning lesson that you've experienced in the last three years? And what was the learning that you got from that experience? It's hard. This is really hard. This, I think this is probably the hardest question to answer because I don't know what failure is. I don't know what failure looks like. I always see it as a learning opportunity. So in another way to frame it, would you say, like, what is one of the most hardest learning opportunities I've had? Yeah, you could say it that way. Like, what was the situation like? What did you actually learn from that trial and tribulation? Great question. One of the hardest ones was probably to get, to move my company from Toronto, a Canadian company, to actually move it to USA and go down a very unorthodox path path that is very countercultural, meaning knowing that I'm taking a risk 
going into unknown land and area and the financial responsibilities, taxations, incorporations, lawyers, everything is 10 times more. It's difficult going down that route. And I learned a lot from having to do it, but I am beyond grateful. I stuck to my guts and I didn't follow the advice of people that were around me, but I did what was best for me in hopes that this would launch. But last year, I never thought it would be now getting into the US federal government. So, and I'm glad because I learned a lot about my character. I learned about grit. I learned about having to really grind. And this mindset that I have today was not the same pre-COVID. It really wasn't. But when you have to go through those harsh learning patterns and realize no one's going to do it for you, this is your baby. This is your dream. You built this, you started this and you finish it and you've got to move forward with it at the same time doing that. And then school and then traveling and all these other pieces, it adds up. What would you say? What was the reason I, I never got into this, but like you said, you moved it from Toronto to the U S so I think it was Florida. What was your reason for picking Florida specifically to like move your company from Toronto to? The main reason was opportunities. Unfortunately, and I'm saying this honestly, being in Canada is wonderful and it's great. And I'm a loyal, passionate citizen to that. But I also realized if you want to swim with the sharks and you want to play in the bigger games and arenas, and if you want to really make a global impact, you need to do this either in Washington, D.C. or in a place, New York City, Miami, California, you need to be in that same ecosystem, but work two times or 10 times harder than what's already already currently happening there. And if I chose to be in Toronto, I wouldn't have the Admiral as my chairman. I wouldn't have the connections that I have now because there's limitations you already put on yourself just by staying in one nation, in one country. How, how did you build? Because I know networking is a term that's thrown around. I don't personally like it because I feel like there's I guess, different interpretations of it, but how did you go about building your connections and your network, especially moving to somewhere that, you know, you don't have family or friends necessarily. So how did you do that? This part is always fun because people really ask me, how did you get to these places so quick and fast without any investors and doing it? The honest truth is I took the time to pray for people and I took the time to be kind And I took the time to listen to a person's story. And without them knowing who I am now, taking those moments to just pray for a person and just say, hey, your struggles are real, but my God is bigger and greater. And I'm willing to stop to hear this. People remembered that kindness and helped me forward. They said, well, you blessed me with this moment. I know someone who knows somebody within this government system, you just got to go and present and I'll make the introduction. They did all these things for me. All I had to do, going back to my theme, being who you were created to be. And that's why these divine connections came at the right time. Even for me to leave Toronto to now move to Arizona and do my doctorate, I came here with only $200 in my, sorry, I'd say maybe $450 in my wallet. And $20,000 was due last week for tuition and accommodations and rentals and fees and this. 
And within the matter of a week and a half, God took care of every single expense and people just stepped up and offered drives and cars and food and took my tuition. And now I get paid to even study. It is all by like the divine favor. And that's what I'm saying that it's not, I don't know. I don't believe in karma. I really don't because I see the power in prayer. And that's why these divine connections just come. And I love to just share them with other people too, because I want others to also progress and move and be a part of something that's just greater than themselves. I agree. That's beautiful. Um, what's been, you know, you, you're doing amazing things. You, you know, you're taking huge risks and, you know, um, and I, I think you'll be rewarded for that, but what's been your support system like in terms of like your friends, your family, your sister, your family, your sister is included, obviously, in your family, but have they ever questioned or criticized um, your career choices? Oh, 100%. Living this type of life is not what I would say traditional Sri Lankan Tamil parents would necessarily want. You're 30 years old, you're not married, you're constantly traveling, you have a company, you're doing these things. And sometimes they just want a simple life for their daughter because they've seen the ups and downs and the tears and the cries and the failures and have to get back up and to restart. And sometimes they wonder like, what did she ever do to deserve this? But then that's only one perspective that's there. So I constantly have to remind myself to forgive people for just what their thoughts are and to just accept them the way they are and love them. My family is incredible. They definitely have encouraged me to do these things because it's beyond their capacity. One of the hardest conversations I had was with my father when I told him I want to move his company to USA. And you could see his heart really drop and sink and realize the opportunities in Canada, what you could contribute to the Canadian economy, the foundation that was already set there, the connections that were already there you're scrapping all of that to move to another country for what? But then a year now, I look back at it and say, that's one of the best choices that I had to make. In terms of the Tamil community in Toronto, I know you're more firmly rooted, obviously, in the U.S. in the last year or so. But how connected do you feel to the Tamil community in Toronto? And what's been your experience with finding your fellow Tamils, you know, in Florida or like now Arizona? Just curious about all that. That's a great question. That is something that I wish I could improve in, honestly. I really do because I found it hard. I found it really difficult to connect with Tamil people and like my own ethnicity and background. I found it very difficult to do that because maybe I live a very unorthodox life, but it's also because I, I guess I love to push the boundaries of innovation so much. I haven't had the time or the capacity to truly be a part of a, a Tamil networking group and to go to regular meetings or to meet up, to go and play this and to, to live in a city long enough to do that. And when you're constantly on the go or having to be connected, like it's great digitally, but I do miss that. And I grew up, if I had to say, not heavily integrated and involved, but I think that was also, if I'm being honest, by choice, because I realized that a lot of my Sri Lankan friends or the community members, like when you go to UFT Scarborough or RH King Academy, another um, school in Scarborough that was there for high school, the mindsets were very different. And I really wish, and I, I fell into that trap of trying to pretend to be someone that I wasn't. 
And because of that, I did well at that time, had my Tamil community and people that were there and friends. But then after studying at UFT and then going to Oxford, things shift and they change. And then you realize that you've also evolved and grown. If I could right now, which is one of the reasons why I'm blessed with an opportunity to be on this podcast and also hope that there's other opportunities, what I would love to do is just help support Tamil people now. Now I have the opportunities to give back and to employ people and to make those connections and to give references so they can go to Oxford and go to Harvard or go to those places because I now live in that world, that global international development world where I'm the only person that looks like this, a bunch of many Caucasian white males that's there. And I want to see more of us actually being successful and growing and thriving and helping each other. I don't think we do a good job wanting to help each other and support that more than just a Facebook like and a comment. It's like, how many times do we get to have a real conversation or era? I'll throw the question back to you. Like, how many times do you actually get to connect deeply one-on-one with another Tamil person that's there, which is more than just a social event and talk about meaningful things and help a person succeed and grow? Yes, I'm in a unique situation because of what I've done with like TamilCulture.com. And um, because I wasn't really as, I I grew up obviously in the Tamil area like you. I had a lot of Tamil friends, but I wasn't as connected as I went to university. But once um, me and Shiv uh, co-founded TamilCulture.com, I think like my viewpoints changed or like I just became intensely proud of being Tamil and Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons was what I thought it meant to be Tamil is totally different than what the actual, I guess, definition was, because what I realized was culture is always changing. It's always evolving. What one person thinks is Tamil culture is not necessarily, like that's their definition of it, but you ask 10 different people, they'll have 10 different definitions. And I also realized that I'm Sri Lankan Tamil, or I come from Sri Lanka and I'm Tamil, but there's a whole different ecosystem of like people that live in you know, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, South Africa. Um, there's so many different cultures, like um, sub, like variants of kind of what culture looks like in the Tamil community. And I've been lucky mm-hmm. to kind of been, been able to, I understand I'm in a unique position because of what I've done. I've, people reach out to me all the time. I connect with people mm-hmm. regularly, but um, it's definitely not something that I intended when I started like 10 years ago. It just kind of, like you said, for you, it just happened. Like I, for me, it's like building network or building connections, not what I can get from people, but it's like you, what I can do for people. And, you know, if something comes back to me, great. If it doesn't, at least I helped out that person, just no expectation of something coming back. So um, yeah, I would say like I'm in a unique position because of what I do. So mm-hmm. I, I do get that opportunity to help both young, old people my age um, because of that. But yeah, I would say most people don't have that opportunity. So I, I agree with you. And um, mm. yeah, I think high school that, like going back to kind of what you talked about your experience, I think high school is that time when you're still developing and kind of figuring yourself out. So the easiest thing to do, and that's what I did, is try to blend in with people, but then you kind of outgrow them. Not, it's not a bad thing. It's just people just grow apart because of their interests. And when mm. I went to university, I always make a joke about this, but I went from like a, like a caterpillar to, I became a butterfly. in university um, where I got to find people that were similar to me but like I became more confident in myself so Mm. um, I can really understand why older people don't really care what people think of them because as you get older 
I mean, for me, and I'm, I think it sounds like you, yeah. I just care less, way less. Like, it's like almost zero, but it's not like in a bad thing. It's just more so I do what I want because I know I'm not doing something bad. I'm, I have good intentions. I'm doing good things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody doesn't see it that way, then I'll definitely reevaluate, but I won't sit and think about, oh, did I look good to this person or that? Like, as long as I felt like I did the right thing, and if I did something wrong, I'm always happy to apologize. I don't think there's a point to holding on to things. So that was that's a very well long said. answer to your question. Well, that's also well said. <laughs> yeah. Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? So another question I'd love to ask is, so mm-hmm. what is looking back and what is looking forward so you kind of answered it but I want to hear your answer anyways what do you think you would tell 16 year old Chantel you got to kind of go back in a town machine sit down with her what do you tell her other than stay in school I would have (laughs) I would have definitely said never put a limit on your mind never never be afraid of anything, but also know the power of your mind to unlock your potential is the greatest key and asset that you have. And looking forward, how would you want your personal legacy to be described by your, you know, how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family? This is a good question. I'm going to be honest about this. There's, um, there's, I would, somebody asked me this question recently which is when you die, what do you want to be said on your tombstone? And I would say, I'd ask for these words to be put on there. She was like Enoch. She walked with God and just leave it at that. And I'm, I'm saying this out of a place of now realizing my privilege, but if I'm being honest with you, all of these acolytes, what I'm doing now, it's nothing. It, it's really nothing unless you know what it's like to live in abundance of love and abide in like godly love. There's four forms of love. You've got agape love, storge love, phileo love, eros love. And this is now Greek methodology, like philosophy and stuff coming into our talk right now too. But when you encounter agape love, the love of God with you, it transforms you and changes you. So you're never the same. And that's how I'd want to be left here on this earth where people know that they've got an opportunity to sit in front of me and have a conversation, but they left feeling like they actually got an encounter with God through this one person, through the knowledge, through the love that was received, through a blessing that was there, through a gift that was passed on to them, through some connection that was given. I don't really need the fame and the glory for it because I know it comes from above. And that's how I'd want to be left. Question I would want to ask you because obviously you're very strong in your faith. Um, But if you look at kind of stats or data, it's, you know, they're saying people that identify as Christians and it's U.S. data, but I think it's pretty applicable to Canada as well, has been steadily going down, you know, the last decade. And the category of people that's been going up is people that identify as atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you I know, think. yeah. So like in terms of like a nation that was founded on, you know, um, you know being a Christian nation, like let's say the U.S., like its roots are kind of there and you know uh, at one point a large part of its population identified as christian yeah now that trend and i think i don't know if it's global but i'll just say at least from the us and canada 
it's generally trended down. Um, why do you think that is? Like, what, what's your guess or like, what's your opinion on that? 100%. Because, because everything you describe, um, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. So why wouldn't people want to experience that um, and, you know, choose to believe that there is, like, if they're an atheist, like, they don't believe in a God? Because they've been, how do I say this? They've fallen into the trap of religion instead of relationship. And I'm not religious. I'm not one to stand for religion. I really am not. I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible out of religious acts. I can't stand for that anymore. I can't stand just to go into, say, a mosque or a temple and just do rituals and just to go down that route. My dad's side is Hindu. My mom's side also has atheists in the family as well as some Christians. We've got a whole eclectic mix where I'm from and upbringing too, but I'm not about religion. And I think if people understood love and a relationship with God and the transformation that comes out of that, your life has changed like mine. And I was, I was never like this. If you asked my 16 year old self, she was boy crazy. Didn't, <laughs> I never think I would get out of school. Like I would even finish and get to York university. My dad was on his knees hoping like to God that I'd actually be able to graduate out of high school. Cause I can, I was not the person I am today, but that's because of working on yourself changes you. Well, I think that's a good way to segue into the last segment of the podcast. Uh, hey. it's going to be it's a fun segment I like to call creator confession so basically I'm going to state like a bunch of statements and you're going to give me the first answer that pops to mind ready okay, okay cool favorite Tamil food Kothroti. Uh something that scares you watching scary movies in the dark like late in the evening night scared of that for sure bad idea yeah for um, sure insecurity you have Freckles. I have freckles and not blanking people have freckles. Yeah. It used used to be not anymore, but yeah, it used to be. Favorite show you're watching. I don't even have time for TV, but before that it was succession. Heard so much about it. Okay. And as a big traveler, a place you're itching to travel to after this pandemic is over or not over, but managed, I guess would be the safe way to say it. Thailand, Thailand or Spain. For sure. A fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Ooh, yes. Okay, there was was this one. um, I don't know. I don't remember her name, but I was reading on your blog. She was an athlete. She she did track and field. Oh, Abby, yes. Yes, yes, definitely her and her story and the things that she was, that she experienced and she went through. Definitely. I'd be happy to hear that. Um, Favorite childhood memory? Kennedy and Eglinton, there's a complex that's there. And as a kid, I, my grandpa would take me to go get mutton rolls right around the area. And I just remember always going there on Little Caesars Pizza. I love that place. Um, What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Oh, I travel like heck. Like this weekend, I'm probably going to go skiing in Colorado or then go hike the Grand Canyon do that just travel travel go see and experience uh, favorite movie of all time i was gonna say what was the avatar avatar i think i really like that movie avatar avatar 2 is coming out later this year oh is it really uh, yes cool. um, check it out 
what's a purchase you've made in the last couple of years that you splurged on, but you have zero regret about it? Last couple of years? I don't, I wouldn't be able to say. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be able to say. I think it was actually birthing a company, splurged on that and actually produced something and created something. And now it's alive and going, which I have no regrets about. Pet peeve. Oh, when people say, um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and uh, I will start sitting there and counting the amount of times. Yeah, that's definitely a pet peeve of mine. I think if I've done this on the podcast, but okay. Um, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have. Absolutely nothing. I, I, I live every day as if I was going to die tomorrow. That's why you just look at your agenda, do what's on the calendar for the day and deal with the other stuff for tomorrow. I get a good seven hours of sleep every day and I'm calm. I'm calm. No stress. Uh, a person whose life, so I say celebrity, but you can be anybody whose life you'd want to experience for one day. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. I'm trying to think. I don't. They have to be alive? No. Einstein. Okay. I'd love to be in the shoes of Albert Einstein. Um, what's been a favorite book? you've read or a podcast you've listened to recently that's had an impact on you? Man, well, this is a good one that I should pull up. I haven't, I haven't read that one yet. Um, I don't know. I don't know. This that's is a healthy hard answer, yeah. Readings, hold on. I got, I got, I, I want to be able to do <laughs> this. What is it, a book? Or a podcast, either or. Actually, I actually have to pull it up now, Spotify. Let's show you <laughs> I found one yesterday, actually. Jordan Peterson's podcast. Okay, got it. You see this one? Yes, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about listening to some of his podcasts recently and yours. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, what's a new belief, behavior, or habit that's improved your life? Oh, I gave up sugar. I don't take any mm, sugar at all. That's a good all. one. I'm trying to do that, but it's so Zero hard. sugar, like not even ketchup on ketchup. How on are you like doing that? Something. Oh, zero. So today's what? It's January 26th. So it's been 26 days, but I did maybe two or three years ago, one whole year, no sugar, no desserts, nothing. So that was my new New Year's resolution for this year. And How did you do that? It's so hard. I feel like sugar, such an addictive, like people yeah. underestimate how addictive it is. It, it, well, that's when I learned what it does to your brain. Yeah. It's almost as equivalent to, to nicotine mm. and the addictions that a person gets where your brain, the neurons and the dendrites within, within the human mind, where it lights up and fires when you're taking in sugar. And I just, it's like I cut cold Turkey. I just cut. If you like that kind of stuff, a podcast that I would tell you to listen to, it's like a really good science podcast that where he breaks down things in a tangible, actionable way. Have you heard of Huberman Labs? No. It's a really good podcast. I've, I only listened to a couple episodes because they're very long. They're like two and a half hours, but wow. really good. Like breaks down why it's important when you wake up to like get sunlight right away into your eyes. Um, mm. You know, why we develop social bonds, like the, the chemistry and physiology and stuff behind it. So pretty cool. Right. And the final question of the speed mm. run is, What's a piece of advice you would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there? 
find a mentor and find a mentor who's not from the same culture as you and learn their ways and why they do certain things. I have about 12 mentors who's actually contributed to my success right now. That's a whole different story right there, but I would strongly encourage anyone get a, get a mentor. Even if you're in your forties and fifties, find someone that's at least in their sixties and seventies to coach you, to train you, to share life experiences with you. The second person that said that I interviewed BJ, who founded like a billion dollar company and he has like older mentors, but he says he has like a 14 year old person that mentors him in um, field hockey, I believe, because he likes field hockey or lacrosse or something. So one of those sports, he's like, yeah, I have a, I have a 14 year old mentor that I'm going to actually jump on a call with him after. And he tells me how to improve my, my game. And I was like, oh, that's really cool that like you can learn from people of different ages. So cool. Well, that's a great way to end off the podcast. Um, you know, now that I know your day and, you know, you're giving me the, the, the last part of your day, you're squeezing that juice and delivering the delivering on the goods. I think people are going to listen to this episode and really enjoy what you had to say, really powerful messages. Um, now, someone listening to this podcast, um, you know, you know, they're touched by what you said or just inspired and want to connect with you. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Is it LinkedIn, email? Like, what do you prefer? LinkedIn is good. Or even Instagram is also good as well, too. LinkedIn, I'll at least respond quick, but Instagram, I'm not on as often. But I love to follow different people and seeing what they're doing and just even a shout out or follow and then a shout out there. I would love to follow you back, but also just to enter to have these conversations, dialogues as well too, and to share connections and to help other people succeed for sure. And even if they were challenged by what I said, I'd love to have those conversations too. You heard it there, guys. Reach out to her. Um, Chantel, appreciate you jumping on and you know, kind of going through and talking about your story and your learnings. I think this is going to be a good episode. Woohoo! You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And for those of you that, list, that keep listening, I appreciate you guys and uh, look forward to the next episode.